From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 392, High Availability Exchange 2013 with guest Paul Cunningham. Recorded Wednesday, October 22nd, 2014. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. My guest today, Paul Cunningham, who is a three-time exchange server MVP, working as a systems consultant in Brisbane, Australia. He's been writing about Microsoft Exchange Server for about seven years at his website, exchangeserverpro.com, as well as creating a number of ebooks and video training courses. Welcome, sir. Thank you. It's great to be here, Richard. Uh, I've been uh, following your show for a long time and, and listening to uh, a lot of the other MVPs and Microsoft folk and, and uh, other people from around the community. So it's, it's, uh, were I'm you really feeling neglected? Be Cause you've obviously been in this a long time. I'm kind of embarrassed to find, I, you know, there's only so many experienced exchange guys out there. Oh, there's, oh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of them. There's a, uh, there's something like a hundred exchange MVPs around yeah. the world. Yeah. yeah. It's, and, uh, but down here in Australia, there's only three of us. Ah, uh, do you get together uh, for coffee every so often and commiserate? No, we all live hours and hours apart. Uh, <laughs> People forget that Australia is as big as it is and very sparsely populated. Actually, it's funny. I've I've met up with the Australian Exchange MVPs over in the US more often than I have here. MVP so, Summit. Yeah, the Summit and uh, Mech as well. Right. Mech earlier this year. Back in the good old days. Are they still doing Mech? Or has it been rolled into the giant conference with no name? Well, I guess it's now called Ignite. Right, yeah. Mech was brought back and it came, it was back for two years. Right. Uh, so 2013 and 2014. And then it's, I guess, uh, been reabsorbed into the new Ignite uh, format. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Because, uh, yeah, I was, for a long time, I was called, just calling it the conference formerly known as TechEd. But uh, I guess we'll see what it is. It's going to be an adventure. So I finished my migration to Exchange 2013, and I feel pretty good about it because it's not as simple as you might think. You know, it's a bunch of steps to get across to 2013. Yeah, that's true. There's always uh, a bunch of steps. It's never an in-place upgrade with Exchange. No. Which, uh, Although I, that whole idea of in-place upgrade today, I, I feel like it's absolute. Everything's virtualized. It is so much easier to build a new VM move the work to it and then retire the old VM than it is to try and upgrade anything. Sure. Are you replacing servers or you know, hardware servers or like you say, just swinging across to new VMs? Yeah. Uh, really it's, it's also, there's just such a significant uh, architectural change in each version of exchange that in place upgrades would be impossible. I mean, they would have to, incrementally release those changes over multiple versions, I, I think it would just slow down the development. For sure. Uh, but they always give you the, that uh, pretty clear transition path, uh, anything N-2. Uh, so it's 2013, you can upgrade or, sorry, migrate from 2007 or 2010. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the migration path is usually pretty well established. The and, uh, uh, I walked, I waited long enough after 2013 came out that they actually had that nice 
web-based wizard where you put in all the specs of the way you want to run your exchange server and then it says okay do this then do this then do this i was really impressed with that yeah so that's the exchange deployment assistant Mm -hmm. you do that little questionnaire you say what am i doing now and what do i plan on migrating to and they give you um you know a high level uh overview of where you still need to sort of dig in and and learn a little bit more along the way but um they certainly give you the uh the recipe and it, yeah, and, and like I said, it's not a trivial number of steps. You really do need to know the details, and it needs to know your configuration to make that happen. Yeah, but it's easy enough to do. You could do that in a test lab. Uh, you know, spend a few weeks just being prepared for you know the changes that you need to make and how those are user impacting changes. Yeah, and, um, I, I usually find that most people sort of get tripped up on some of the coexistence concepts where you're sort of shifting some of your namespaces across to, you know, the new version and it's it's doing things like proxying connections to the old servers. And, um, that That's a little bit hard sometimes for people to visualize, sure. but you do that in a training lab and you see it working and it, it adds that confidence, you know, that, oh, okay, this is going to work fine. I can really Yeah, if you redirect the client access role to the new machine, it will communicate with the mailboxes on the old machine. It just does it for you. That's right, yeah. And the, the, the challenge, and you're, uh, you said this already, but it, you know, you're right. Architecturally 2013 is very different from 2010. And so, you know, some of the, the stuff, the assumptions that you made in 2010 aren't correct anymore. They've taken it a different angle on it. One of them being they want all the roles together in a VM. Now they, you know, 2010 was the one where they wanted three different VMs all in different roles. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the multi-role sort of architecture that 2007, uh, Exchange 2007 sort of brought around and um, sort of, I guess, it trained a lot of people to think that they all needed to be separate installations, which was really a, a, an issue of the hardware available at the time. Right. You, you run into certain scaling constraints when you coexisted the roles together. Um, those aren't really issues today, and it's certainly a lot simpler. Do you think it's just the evolution of the hardware that we're, we just, we have enough memory and processors, just not that big a deal? That's a big part of it, yeah. And also the way they've re-architected it so that most of the workload and, and uh, I guess, intelligence of the product is now within the one role and the, the client access server now is, is, is basically just a little, that's uh, what, you know, everyone says it's a thin stateless proxy. It's just literally just proxying connections, authenticating and proxying connections. Right. Uh, all the hard work's being done by the mailbox server now, all of the transport stuff, UM stuff, that's all been uh, collapsed onto the mailbox role. And yeah, it just just does it. It's not a, not a big deal. Uh, but when it comes to high availability, you know, I know my way around high availability from a uh, a web perspective. You know, that's my my background. I've never really done high availability uh, on Exchange. But, you know, the I can't imagine the rules are that different. It just means two of everything, at least. At least two, two or more. Uh, I like to think of four as being the best number. Right. Uh, four lets you do uh, multi-site, high, you know, site resilience as well as high availability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so four servers split across two sites, two in each site. That gives you a pretty robust solution. Uh, it's it, it's funny. I mean, Exchange is a, a very intelligent application when it comes to high availability. So it it, it works in, I guess different ways than people are used to. I mean, if you talk to a virtualization expert, they're used to thinking about high availability as, you know, uh, 
individual servers that need to be, you know, powered on on a different host if they've failed on one host and and things like that. Exchange works, you know, much more at the application layer. It is a cluster. There is an underlying cluster, but all of the intelligence and all the action is built into the Exchange application itself. And it's getting really, really smart in how it handles itself in those HA deployments too. For sure. Uh, shall we go, do, do the individual roles matter? I mean, I know the whole attitude of 2013 is everything, you have one VM that runs everything and you just want two or three or four of those? Or what about I mean, the IP address is unique? Right, like if I when I, my and my FQDNs point to an IP, am I having to cluster that to handle the client access side? Right, so you've got uh, your client access namespaces. So that's all the um, the URLs that your clients are connecting to. So you've got your Outlook clients, for example, and they're connecting to an Outlook Anywhere URL, which would be you know mail.contoso.com, which is the Example, you know, one of those example Microsoft companies, they love those Contosos and yep. what's the other ones? Wingtip toys or something? Uh, Tailspin toys. Twitch and Mather, you know, they're uh, Northwind. <laughs> <laughs> I, the so funny you get, part yeah. now is, you know, I remember those things when they were brand new and, you know, it was always amazed how they built. And now I know the guys who built them and, and knew the, now know the intent behind them. And it's just, you know, they needed a sample of some kind. Let's pick something, you know, and, and and sort of run with it from there as a demonstration of a given set of technology. But yeah, the Contoso one is so ubiquitous. It's in so many places. You forget. It's just a sample app. Yeah. Yeah. I would look, so, I mean, they've, if you think back to Exchange 2003 or 2007, we'll start, sort of start at 2007, you had Outlook clients and they were making, you know, RPC connections directly to a server um, that was, you know, hosting the Marbox database. And if you had a clustered server, they were connecting to the cluster name and and, and that was basically how that worked. And it worked okay uh, if, you know, the cluster failed over, maybe the, uh, especially if you're doing multi-site failover, yep. the IP address would change, of course, because, you know, different IP addresses in the two different sites. You have a little DNS latency issues. So the DNS record has to time out. The Outlook client couldn't reconnect until, you know, that new DNS uh, uh, IP was resolving correctly. Yep. So that was not ideal. And so in 2010, they sort of moved the client connectivity into the, you know, the client access role, all right. of the client activity, including the RPC connectivity. And and I like the idea of that as its own role. You know, again, it's in, when it comes to scaling stuff like web technology, that isolation means I can scale that by itself independent of other roles. Right. So you get front end, back end. Right. Things can fail independently. Things can be scaled and load balanced independently. So they gave you a, a basically you know, the ability to implement an alias, a DNS alias for uh, those RPC connections. And that worked pretty well. But the way they, they had the, the server roles architected, uh, you had some um, caveats around multi-site failover, and in a you know, in in some of the more complex HA and site resilience deployments, you had I think upwards of nine different namespaces uh, in DNS that you had to potentially manage as well. So they simplified it in 2013. I think they've cut that down to just a handful of namespaces, really. And what are the requirements? I mean, obviously you have your mail dot whatever that may be. I don't know how you do yours, mm-hmm. or do you create separate ones for POP and IMAP, or just mail? Uh, well, you have the option. So you've got a bunch of different HTTPS workloads. You've right. got 
Outlook, you've got Outlook Web App, you've got Active Sync, you've got Exchange Web Services, you've got the offline address book, which is collected from a URL as well. Right. Um, and, you know, if we're and doing again, those test could all right be now, just the same name, but if you want to make it OAB, if you want to make it uh, OWA, you know, you can. Bingo, yeah. And there's arguments for and against. So you can have unique names for each one of them. And it just means you've got to put a few more names on your certificates and manage a few more DNS records, or you can consolidate that down to one single name for all of your HTTPS workloads. And you one yeah, so that could be your mail. What's the minimum? It's mail dot server name dot and auto discover dot. Uh, you can leave server name out. Uh, so you don't need that one at all. Right. Uh, and it's recommended not to, you know, not to leave the the server fully qualified domain name on any of your your URLs, right? Um, so you, so you reconfigure them all to use um, various aliases. Mm-hmm. Uh, the minimum is yeah, like a mail dot and then auto discover dot auto discover. Those are the those are absolutely the bare essentials. Which you know, not to get off too far off on a tangent, but I guess this is still part of the story of building high availability. How do you feel about wildcard? Uh, SSL certs in this scenario. Yeah, look, they're um, they're fine. I mean, look, they're they're completely supported. Yes, uh, I think there's a few caveats if you're doing link integration. Perhaps I think is one of them. Right. Uh, but as far as like a pure exchange perspective, they're they're fully supported, and it's really just a. I guess an issue of whether your organization worries about those security implications with wildcards where you know you potentially got the wild the certificate being used to spoof other other namespaces for right. you, um, your users. If that's not a big concern for you, and let's face it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of an edge case. Um wildcards are fine. They're so they're usually cheaper. Yeah. Um so, you know, ninety nine dollars versus two hundred and fifty nine dollars or something like that. I mean that's a big deal for some companies. Well, and you so, also, sure. you know, it, may, it allows you to avoid deciding, right, on all, on all the different names you want in advance. So you just go, give me them all and I'll do what I want. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a get out of jail free card if you don't do your names, <laughs> namespace planning uh, very, very well. But, uh, you know, by the same by the same token, you can, you can screw up a, a SAN certificate or a UC certificate and go back to your provider and say, oh, I need to add another name or I need to change yeah. one of those names. And a lot of them will reissue that certificate for free uh, these days. I don't know. Every every time I've done a cert, within a year, you do a reissue. It just seems to be reality. There's always something. Mm. You know, like the, there's always something to tinker with to try and get that right. Certificates are not a trivial thing to get exactly right. No, but they're everywhere now. They are everywhere. Then you you can't avoid them. Paul, give me one second to pay the bills, as I've got to tell folks that Run As Radio is brought to you by ScriptRock, the makers of Guardrail and the fighters of Configuration Drift. Configuration Drift happens in every environment, from five nodes to 5,000. Guardrail will find and scan the configs of every node in your environment, no matter the platform, and alert you to changes happening across machines. Give it a try for three months free with the coupon code RUNASRADIO, all one word, at scriptrock.com slash RUNASRADIO. All right, I want to jump back into, we're talking about client access here. We've got our cert out there. And, it, you know, for me, it's it's mostly about reliability, that I want two machines responsible for the client access point so that one of them can go down. Although, for the most part, these are all VMs now. Or is it, should be running Forefront for this? 
should we be running forefront? Which which forefront should we be running? That's TMG? a good question. <laughs> Forefront's dead. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's no forefront anymore, really. Like, what is the recommended high availability pattern now for the client side of this thing? Uh, well, you've got the uh, the cheapest option is DNS round robin. Right. So you can DNS round robin your your client access servers. Uh, and modern web browsers and modern Outlook clients. And by modern, I mean sort of, you know, Outlook 2010 and above. So Outlook 2013 handles this really well. Yep. Uh, they can handle DNS round robin and uh, you'll really run into no significant uh, end user problems. And, you know, if one of your servers fails, the clients will spend about 20 seconds working out that one of the two IP addresses they've got from DNS has failed. Um, and they'll just, just use the other, the other one. one. Exactly. Nothing mythical oh, about it. It is a simple process. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Yeah. But they don't, you, obviously, you lose some of the good things about load balancing, which is, of course, that your load is balanced. Um, DNS round robin is sort of a pseudo random load balancing, I guess. You could end up with 80% of your users connected to one server and 20% to the other. Yeah. Uh, it's not a, It's not trying to make intelligence, but in the end, a given workload is not known. If workloads are symmetrical, and I'm putting on my web performance hat here, if, if we're, workloads are symmetrical, then load balancing kind of ma- unintelligent load balancing with the business in the work will it'll sort of come out in the wash. But when you're talking about mail access, like a lot of those pigs are just going to be bring me, give me the la- latest mail, and that's trivial. But a lot of them aren't, and there's no way to know, you know, how much a given workload is going to come from any given connection. Sure, but you've sized your servers. I mean, if you've got two servers and yeah. you're, you're you're sizing for the scenario where one could fail, then hopefully, you know, whether your loads are balanced or not is not hopefully not an issue. Yeah, because it, either you one of those be servers. able to run your entire workload on one of those servers if you only have two. Correct. And so round robin's close enough. It's it's going to do the job. But this is, again, and for me, most of the time scaling is more about reliability than it is about performance, even though mm. it tends to be sold on the back of performance. People just don't want mail to go down. They'll live with slow mail, but no mail is bad. Yeah, you're right. I'll tell you this. DNS round robin is better than Windows network load balancing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Poor old NLB. You know, it is free and it's worth everything you paid for it. Yeah. (laughs) Look, it's it's not the answer to exchange load balancing uh, really anymore. It it, it was sort of briefly in the conversation in the Exchange 2010 era, but... if you can't afford a, a hardware load balancer or a virtual load balancer, just use DNS round robin, please. <laughs> right. Rather than using an LB. Uh, I mean, we're not just talking about buying $50,000 Cisco load balancers, right? There, there are much less expensive load balancers out there. Yeah, there's really uh, very affordable load balancers that are really at a price point where you could just implement them for exchange or yep. exchange and link. I mean, they are, they are at the price point where you don't need sort of load balancing for all kinds of applications in your enterprise. You just need them for these couple of services. I mean, you can virtualize them or, you know, buy a couple of appliances and, yep. and you're good to go. And, in, and you said the magic word, a couple, because again, if we're dealing with high availability and reliability, you need redundancy there too. But, Absolutely. You know, it used to be these were five, even six-digit acquisitions, you know, and now they're four. Now they're under 10 grand for a particular application. You can buy the big ones if you want. So, 
You know, you certainly have choice there. I just think that most exchange guys are far enough away from networking that the prospect of suggesting you want to put stuff in the rack makes people nervous. <laughs> like they, they're not the they they don't want to talk to those guys. But it, often it's the best way to solve the problem. Yeah, for sure. And you got to you have to get it in there early in the conversation. It shouldn't be a surprise at the end of the project planning. Oh, we need load balances as well. Right. <laughs> you got to get it in there early. Have it budgeted for. Um, don't surprise network guys. They're jumpy. Yeah, look, if you, one of the other MVPs uh, said it just this week, if you're big enough to have high availability needs and multiple servers, you, you're big enough to put load balances in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that just sort of takes that job over then. You don't, you don't have to worry about it that much. It still means you want at least two client access roles because that can fail and we're trying to stay alive. But the, the load balancing work itself, you know, there's a variety of ways to get that solved. Absolutely. And they fail at the, at the, you know, at the protocol, the workload layer. They don't just fail. The whole host doesn't go down. You'll just get a little problem with just one particular protocol. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that's, that's the level of high availability and resilience that you, you need to plan for and that exchange is capable of responding to as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it'd be nice if they failed the way we tested them to fail, where you just pull the plug on the device or anything like that. But it's that I'm kind of alive. Except I can't do that work. That that is really tricky to test for and to actually know it's failed over properly. Well, it's doing it for you now. Uh, so you would have heard about uh, managed availability in Exchange twenty thirteen, which is is it's uh, people love it and people hate it. I think more people hate it. <laughs> managed <laughs> so availability. Far, managed availability. It's it's a. Uh, let's call it an artificial intelligence, if you will, that's built into Exchange and it just sits there and it's constantly running um, probes and synthetic transactions and looking for, you know, uh, errors in disk performance and things like that. Always running, always watching. And when it sees a problem, it will take corrective action. So if it thinks that, uh, you know, the active sync protocol on one of your mailbox servers is... Um, playing up one of the synthetic transactions is is failing or, or throwing an error it will fail over your databases to your hmm. other node uh, to put them onto a healthy mailbox server where there's a healthy active sync protocol nice all in the interest of uh, improving the user experience and that's what people don't like about it this managed availability is in there moving things around and and not always explaining services. itself very well not all no it's well it's not um it doesn't yeah it doesn't do a good job of explaining itself yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah it just it just sort of lets you know. Hey, I moved this. Just wanted you to know. Well, your database moved. See yeah. if you can work out why. <laughs> you did what? <laughs> well, oh, by the way, you know, sometimes I, it feels like this. He's just like a junior admin. I did this. You did. What? By the way, I rebooted that server for you. <laughs> You're like, what? What? <laughs> you what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this is a this is a mindset issue. This is a mindset issue for Exchange admins. They're not used to other people touching their servers yes. and servers rebooting and. And that's not, that's not a comfortable conversation to have to have. Why did that server reboot in the middle of the day? Yeah. And you have to say, well, managed availability did it to restore service. Nice. Like, well, that, that counts as downtime, right? You start, you know, but that's only if you're measuring your downtime based on your hosts and not your actual service. Right. Yeah. You're not measuring your downtime correctly at that point, which is, you know, I mean, that's a whole other conversation about how we actually instrument and measure the quality of service from our, from our IT organization. Like that's a, a big one, but I'm with you. Mail never went down, but that server restarted. 
Yeah. Well, you just you just need to frame it in the context of Office 365. Do you yeah. think they care the server restarted in Office 365? Or do they care that the user experience and the mail service was kept up because managed availability took some corrective action? Yeah. Which, again, if you're really building a high availability solution, this is something you want. Managed availability lives completely inside of your own organization. Correct. Are there extra bits you need to run? Is OpsMan a requirement? No, it just runs all on its own. It's all built into Exchange. Right. In fact, they've kind of taken the intelligence out of SCOM in terms of Exchange, and SCOM is just kind of taking a data feed from managed availability now. Right. Um, if you are running SCOM, you don't need SCOM for managed availability to do its magic. At no. Would SCOM help you see that it did it? Yeah, it can be something that captures the information and, I guess, alerts you to the things that happened. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, you the intelligence is not built into the SCOM management pack anymore. Nice. Should we move to database groups or mailbox groups? What's the new name? Database availability groups. There you go, the DAGs. The DAGs. Terrible name. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I... I have talked to folks where I've said, you know, I think, I think this is where WinFS actually ended up. Remember the, the three pillars of Longhorn before it became Vista, when it all got ripped apart to become Vista and so forth? Like, the, the capabilities that exist in exchange for the way it does data storage, A, it feels like it's hostile to SANS, and B, you know, it, it, it sure looks like this sort of smart storage model now between that and storage spaces. It's like, this is son of WinFS, I think. Yeah, hostile to SANS. That's interesting. You like that line? <laughs> interesting way of putting it. Yeah. Maybe it's not sort of like Exchange doesn't need SANS anymore. That's, exa- yeah. you know, and not, not only doesn't need, but having performance problems when running on them. It's like, it turns out if I just give this... Uh, this exchange server a bunch of disks it's happier and faster and so is your troubleshooting yeah because we've all had that conversation that exchange is running slow and you've got your exchange guy on one side of the table and your storage guy on the other side of the table yeah and he's looking at his sand metrics and he's saying these all look fine to me and you're looking at your exchange metrics and these don't look fine to me at all <laughs> and yeah <laughs> somewhere in the middle there's a problem but you right. can't really solve it and and uh, then we, it turns out if you grabbed a half a dozen uh, enterprise class drives, stuck them on a SATA bus, and went, you got better results. Much simpler. And yes. I'm a big fan of simplicity in exchange designs. It's 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 a it's an interesting. Again, it's a mindset issue for some organisations that email is so important that it they probably look at you like you're crazy if you put a design in front of them that is just commodity servers with you know direct attached you know yeah bunch of disk in them you know no raid all yeah. these sort of things that they, some of them all the stuff you were supposed to absolutely have no matter what right exactly but how do we protect from storage files we don't need to you just let your dag fail over when one of your disks fails and you replace your disk right <laughs> it's just or you now that means i have multiple vms that run the mailbox role with presumably separate chunks of storage. So there's not a single point of failure there. And, uh, and I put them into a database availability group and it does the rest. Really? Really? Yeah. I mean, a database availability group, it's a, it's a, an object or a construct that you create and you add your mailbox servers as members and then 
all the members of a DAG can participate in what's called continuous replication of their databases. So, you know, server one can host the active copy of the database and then you can have as many as 15 passive copies of the database that are just kept permanently updated, continuously updated. And if you have a failure on that active server, uh, a whole uh, algorithm kicks in that, that decides which of my passive copies is the best one to bring online and become the active copy. And it all happens, can happen in the blink of an eye, just right. a few seconds. Uh, it's really impressive. Yeah. And so behind you the keep- scenes, you've got an active copy, but every time something's coming and going, every time a new mail comes in and so forth, it's being written to the passive copies as well. Every change is replicating. So right. you've got your normal transaction logging that's occurring on your active copy. Uh, so anyone who's sort of familiar, you, you exchange database and you exchange transaction logs, similar to SQL. Uh, all of your changes are being written into memory on both the active, the server hosting the active mailbox database, and they're also being replicated to the log buffer in the memory of your servers hosting your passive database copies as well. Mm-hmm. So they're all being kept up to date almost in real time. Just depends on your network latency and a few other things as well. And then their log buffer fills up and they all write their copy of the transaction log files and they put it on disk. And then they slow, you know, they commit those into their copies of the databases as well. And within, you know, anywhere from a few seconds to a few minutes, if you've got a healthy database availability group with very little latency, um, all of those copies are, are basically identical. But when you have a failover, there's always that possibility that, you know, some portion of one log file wasn't replicated yet or right. something like that. And so there's a whole bunch of backup sort of capabilities um, behind that failover operation that protect you from data loss. So Exchange has this uh, feature called safety net. And safety net is basically like a, a, a cache of mail that's already been processed and delivered into the database. And by default, it keeps two days worth of email. So if you have a, a failover from your active to your passive copy and it says, oh, I've lost an hour's worth of logging in that failover, right. an hour's worth of email, it puts in a request to SafetyNet. SafetyNet re-delivers that email into the new active copy of the database and everybody carries on. It's like it never happens. Wow. And so you can do, this is active-passive failover. You can create an active-active environment by creating two uh, database groups one active on one VM, the other active on the other VM, they're failing to each other and you split the mailboxes between them. So yeah, so you can have one, you can have as many database availability groups as you want, but you can have one, one database availability group with up to 16 members uh, in it. And the failover and the active passive stuff, that's all happening at the database level. So it's not like a traditional cluster where the whole cluster has to fail over from one cluster node to the other. This is all happening at the database level. So if you've got, say, four or five databases and you've got, uh, let's say for argument's sake, two members of your database availability group, Mm -hmm. each of those uh, members can host, or one of them can host three active database copies, the other one can host two, so if you total of five databases. So they're both doing work. Yes. They're both actively serving clients. You've kind of balanced your load a little bit there. Uh, But, of course, if you lose one of them, those database copies will fail over to the other one that's right. still online. It will do all the work while your second one, you know, is being uh, uh, restored. 
Well, which is what you want. You know, it's not that complicated. You want it to be able to to keep going, even if it is a bit slower. Nothing gets lost. The day the mail's actually there while you go through the recovery process. Yeah, trust your DAG. Trust your DAG to make the right decisions for you. Yeah, uh, it will fail over when it needs to. And some admins, some admins, they try to undermine it. Oh, I don't want it failing over during the day. Well, why not? <laughs> why not? Like, if it's going to solve a problem yeah. for you. And the managed availability uh, plays a role in this as well. Yeah, or managed availability will be in there failing over databases for you if, right. it, if it thinks that it's necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it deals with this idea of stuff doesn't fail elegantly. It's not like the VM just disappears. It's it's something's wrong. It's not behaving well. And that assessment ability that to be able to say, hey, you know, that active database is not happy. I'm going to get off of there. That's that's a, the, a tricky assessment. And that's what managed availability is all about. That's what managed availability is all about. It sees problems that you would not see. You would not see them as the administrator. And if your users are seeing them, they may not even pick up the phone and call you about them. Right. So it's like, oh, my calendar's acting a bit weird today or I can't seem to download the offline address book. Mm. You, know, you may not hear about those issues, but managed availability will see them and it will do something about them. Yeah. It's so good. I even I even have uh, – so I've got a, a significant – significant size test lab here at home running Exchange 2013. And I'm probably stressing my hardware a little bit further than it wants to be stressed, which means that my test lab environment fails in interesting ways, which is very educational. Right. And sometimes there'll be, I'll look at it and I'll say, oh, like the content indexes on these databases have failed. And, you know, a couple of years ago when it was an Exchange 2010 lab, I would have to go in there and fix it because I'm the only one who's going to fix it. Right. Uh, if I want to keep doing work in my test lab. With managed availability, sometimes I just look at it and go, oh, I'll just go to bed. <laughs> It'll figure itself out. <laughs> and I'll come back in the morning and it's worked it all out. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. So client access, uh, mailboxes, what else needs to be reliable? Well, you also need your transport to be reliable. Right. So that's your mail flow. Uh, now, a lot of that happens automatically for you. Um, so you've got multiple servers. Exchange has its own little, you know, routing algorithms. It can work out where it needs to get to between the different servers in your organization. It can see all the routes that it needs to get there. Um, things like safety net uh, that we talked about just before, mm-hmm. you know, that all works uh, automatically for you. All you really need to do with safety net is make sure that you, you configure that uh, threshold to the right number of days, basically. So it has enough backup to recover from anything. Yeah. So if you've got the two days by default, that might be fine. Uh, But if you're using uh, lag database copies, so that's um, uh, a copy of a database within your your DAG that is um, lagging behind, literally lagging behind the other copies in terms of how frequently it... uh, commits transactions into the, its database copy. So you can set those for like seven or 14 days or something like that. Right. Um, and they just exist for certain sort of, you know, logical corruption type scenarios and, and some other um, recovery scenarios, particularly if you have ditched traditional backups. You need sort of a lag copy in some cases then to be able to turn back time and, and um, recover data. Right. Somebody so if you've got a, deletes a bunch yeah. of mails by accident. Exactly. So if you've got a seven-day lag copy, 
then you should set safety net to at least seven days as well. Because yeah. if you ever need to activate that lag copy for, you know, recovery scenario, it's got to be able to go to safety net and say, give me up to seven days email. Um, that yeah, I would think you'd want more than that. Because if you're only, if you're lagging seven days, you're not going to find out something really goes wrong until you pass it seven days. Yeah, you're probably right. You probably want to give yourself a few extra days. Yeah. So let's say something goes wrong on a Friday night, it might be at least two days before you respond. So maybe... You know, add three days. Yeah, to, three or four. Like, I'm almost tempted to go double just because, you know, the two the normal two-day default is based on a daily backup model. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the day, you know, if, if your backup fails one day, you have another day there to recover from it before you start getting into trouble with your safety net. Yeah. And there's nothing complicated about lag database copies. They just, they are going to hang on to more, co- you know, transaction logs on right. disk. Uh, you just need larger disk capacity for um, all of that transaction logging to sit on disk for longer. Yeah. But, you know, you, of course, you're using nice, cheap disk, disk <laughs> not using expensive sand. So, it's cheap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, the correct amount is more. <laughs> yeah. More <laughs> is the answer. Yeah. Paul, it's really fun talking to you. Thanks so much for these thoughts. Any last pieces? Are we missing anything here? Uh, it's a big topic. It's a yes. big topic. Yeah, it is. Aren't you putting together a book on this? Yeah. So, uh, that's, uh, an ebook that myself and two of my fellow exchange MVPs have been working on this year. Is that Uh, all the exchange MVPs in Australia working together on this book? No, it's myself, uh, Steve Goodman, who's in the UK. Oh, yes. And, uh, Michael Van Horenbeek, who's in, uh, Belgium. Oh, nice. So we've got an uh, American and two, I guess, two Europeans. There Let's you say go. Two Europeans. <laughs> uh, sorry, Australian and two Europeans. I just called myself <laughs> so uh, should expect it any time now, and it's focused specifically on managed availability. It's focused on, uh, so we're, we're calling it, uh, I think we're going to call it Configuring and Managing High Availability for Exchange 2013. We do cover managed availability. We cover client access server high availability, mailbox server high availability, Hopefully, everything you'd ever want to know about DAGs, uh, you know, lag database copies, how some of the cool new features like auto-reseed, which we didn't really talk about, but it's an awesome feature, um, how it works. Um, we're just in the final editing stages of putting it together. It's going to be published as an ebook through exchangeserverpro.com in the next probably couple of weeks. So um, more than happy for anyone to, to visit the site and check it out if they're interested. Exchangeserverpro.com. That's it. Paul Cunningham, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Richard. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.